coming to you from Star Studios in Denton, Texas. I'm Tom Collins Signs in Limerick, Ireland. This is Coffee with a Sign Painter, a podcast hosted by sign painter Sean Starr and Tom Collins. This groovy soundtrack was written and performed by Fergal Lawler of the Cranberries. Thanks, Fergal. Laura and Dave from Triple Threat Press, used to be Denton, now in Cleveland, but back in Denton. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so let's start with uh, why are you guys back in Denton? Uh, we came back in, into town to do the uh, Dime Handmade Harvest. It's a big event every year with local makers who sell uh, their wares. Yeah, it's all handmade goods and. Uh, we, uh, we started our business there, like our first retail goods were sold there, so it's kind of like a, a thing that we try to make a, a regular practice of, and uh, they change locations, they change dates, it, you know, it's generally a really hard thing to, to, you know, redo all that stuff and still get a huge crowd and a bunch of vendors, but they did it, it was wonderful, we're so glad to be back. Yeah, Kaylee and I went on Saturday and picked up some of your stuff and some other stuff. It's a cool, cool event. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they do a good job over at the Dime Store. So. Yeah. so this all worked out good because we had interviewed you guys in Cleveland when we were up for Weapons of Mass Creation Fest, and the audio that came from that was not usable. Yeah. So we, here we are. It's good timing, I guess, that, that we were able to, yeah, to do this again. Yeah, we're happy. We're also like... It's kind of abstract when you're talking about, you know, a place like Denton, you know, which was a lot of what we, we talked about previously, but, you know, it, it's all, like, in your in your head. It's just a nice refresher. Like, if this stuff comes up, we've got, like, new experiences since we moved away. I don't know. It makes the nostalgia a little bit stronger. Maybe it'll be a more sentimental podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no weeping. Yeah. No crying. So, um, you guys have a design slash letterpress studio. Mm-hmm. Yep. That you guys started here in Denton. Yeah, we started it in the front bedroom of our house in 2012, uh, and we made holiday cards and things to sell uh, for that holiday season, and weren't really sure where it was going to go after that. And then got a really good response from that and decided to kind of see how far we could take it. And uh, to this point, uh, it has gone from the front bedroom of our house to uh, December 1st, we'll be opening our own letterpress studio in Cleveland. So Congratulations. That's awesome. People can finally come and... Uh, visit by appointment or during public events we'll have studio sale type of uh, things going on okay. uh, and we don't have to illegally hide in our house. Yeah, that's kind of fun too though. Nice to have a bit of, of Stick a it to the man. mystery. Yeah. 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 We've got we've got some uh, rebelliousness about us. Or, yeah. yeah, we'll miss that I guess. <laughs> so how'd you guys get involved with letterpress? Well, uh, when I uh, came to the University of North Texas in 2009, I uh, was in the graduate program for printmaking, and uh, a couple years in, uh, the graduate, uh, I guess one of the professors, found a letterpress, and uh, it, was, it was in town about to be scrapped, so they, they got it in the studio, and myself, the professor, and several other graduate students who are absolutely beyond, some of the most talented people I've ever met, um, we all put our heads together and we helped restore this. And so from there, uh, not only did I restore this this 
or helped restore this kind of pretty far gone press, but uh, I learned a lot about kind of like jerry-rigging things and understanding like just because it's tradition doesn't mean you have to do it exactly that way. You can make new backwards uh, uh, ways of doing things and you know you start to do all these really fun things with machines that are when you get down to the root of it all very similar and we got ourselves a small press right when I graduated uh, to kind of help me continue to make art and Dave said why not just try and make some money off of it. So we restored that little press, and now uh, we're four presses deep, about to be five presses deep, and um, one of them is almost identical to the very first press that I helped restore. So yeah, we're really excited. Very cool. And so your background is? Uh, I (laughs) call myself a jack of all trades and master of none. Uh, My background is in a little bit of everything. I played in bands when I was a teenager. I started doing websites for those bands because nobody else knew how to do it. Um, I took graphic design classes in college. Um, I do photography. So I do a lot of stuff that I'll... You hustle. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit every of day hustling. hustling. Every day, yeah. every single day. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, just call yourself a Renaissance man. Thank that's you. Really cool. yeah. That's what my mom calls me. So, yeah, it's just a little bit of everything, but all centers around the, you know, creative realm. So, yeah. I've often said, like, when, when people would ask me when I was a kid, like, what do you plan on doing? I'd say I'm only good at so many things and they all have to be in the same field. So I guess I'm lucky at that. And I think Dave is like really similar. But see, that's old school because, you know, prior to social media where people like micro focus on one little thing they're Uh doing, Mm -hmm. like you had to like do it all. Yeah. You had to scrub the toilet and figure out the accounts and figure out how to sell whatever it is you're doing. (laughs) scrub my fair share of toilets as well. I think that as like business people that's really that's so true you end up doing a lot of stuff you don't want to do and like things that you never picture your talents needing to like come into play to help out with and you know like you said scrubbing the toilets but balancing the books and painting you know you know cleaning the windows whatever it takes you just got to do it. Yeah and I think that's um that's a disconnect right now um with seeing a lot more people get into creative fields mm-hmm. is not understanding like 98% of it's very unglamorous grunt work mm-hmm. yeah. to be able to do the 2% that's fun and you know exciting mm-hmm. yeah yeah we're, we're uh yeah we know exactly what that's all yeah. about at the same <laughs> we do a lot of grunt work we do but at the same time like there's nowhere that that is written down there's rarely going to be an instance where a young person knows who to talk to to find out all of these things so I think that like this social media um, you know uh, wave uh, you know the popularity of of just being so open with and personal with the people who are following us is so important because we get to start writing about like what it really is like do not be you know under the impression that this is going to be a glamorous job you know you got to do the nitty-gritty stuff and if we start being more transparent like online about that kind of stuff i feel like the next generations are really gonna have uh, you got a good point and I, I just took a lot of crap from i posted um the the uh, q a interview that i did 
in Cleveland uh-huh. on YouTube, and I'm going to be putting it up on the podcast soon. Um, but I got some grief over that because some of the things I said in the Q&A were along those lines. They're not too pretty. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's like that's just reality. I'd rather tell people what at least my experience has been than try to, you know, paint it as something, mm-hmm. you know, that's been all warm and fuzzy. It, mm-hmm. it hasn't been, and it still isn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're still doing the same thing everybody else is doing with, oh, crap, the money in the account's getting low. Oh, crap, the taxes are due, you know, and on and on and on. It's just part of a part of life. And I'd rather be transparent about that than have people think, oh, well, I'm graduating art school in a year and I'm just going to jump in and be a sign painter and I'll make good money. And it's like, yeah, good luck with that. You'll have a great time. Yeah. But it's not going to be easy yeah and you won't have a retirement plan mm-hmm. and you'll you'll you know at the very best you'll be like keeping up with your bills mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know true. yeah um you're but i know you guys have dealt with a lot of those same issues yeah we have and i think that like we're one of the the first generations where um where a lot of people kind of like crap on our like our our age group we're considered millennials um, and last night we actually had a really wonderful conversation with Dave's uh, old boss, a really good friend of ours, and uh, his wife and his brother and our friend. And um, they're slightly older than us. And, you know, they kept saying, like, you guys don't seem like millennials. You don't seem like millennials. And it's because I think that, you know, we're the whole idea of being a millennial is like you, you have two elements of your personality. You know that you got to hustle, but at first it's a you know you've been really coddled so like you know you can't get down on these kids for being kind of in the dark about things because they're ready to do it they've just never been told any of this like nitty-gritty stuff so yeah and that's a that's a fair point too you know i'm definitely on the other end (laughs) wise but you know it's i i think it it's difficult to remind yourself like the way my dad was was like people like that don't exist anymore mm-hmm. well it, they also existed in a world where you could be like that whereas nowadays I don't know that our world is necessarily set up to be able to handle people mm-hmm. who just I mean my dad was the same way he decided that you know he started working for his dad and learned how to rebuild transmissions and, uh, and realized that there was nowhere for uh, him to get all of the parts that he needed from one place. And he was calling all these different companies to get parts to rebuild transmissions. And so he just started, he bought an enormous warehouse and just started stocking all of these parts. And that, you know, that was his business. And, you know, nowadays, go out and try to find an enormous warehouse where you can you know, skirt EPA regulations and all this stuff to just have a building where you can tear apart transmissions all day and oh yeah, burn, when, you know when when we were in South Texas doing custom paint, you know, we we would paint like in their wash bays at, at car dealerships, mm-hmm. you know, and the fumes <laughs> were just yeah. pouring out, and, you know, but that's just how it was. Yeah, yeah. and so it's we it's kind of a different world where. You know, things. You there are still people who can go out and just find out what they want to do and go out and get it done, but it's also 
can be difficult to do that. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. And it's, you know, I, to a certain extent, it's nostalgia for something that doesn't exist anymore. Totally. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, we're trying to buy a house and um, our banker pretty much was like, you guys are a really unique case because your income is coming from so many different directions, so many different types of businesses. And I thought about it and I was like, how much longer can he expect to get these solid one income or two income kind of families where you don't have the hustler, you know, with two or three side gigs or the guy who works in an office Monday through Thursday, but Friday, Saturday and Sunday, he does wedding photos. Yeah. And I've, I've read that that's very much now the norm. Yeah. And it's problematic. Yeah. You know, it's the, yeah, but I mean, it's it's normal now that people have multiple things they're dabbling in to mm-hmm. try and get enough money in yeah. the door. I mean, we yeah. we do too. We've got little sidelines with apparel and other things yeah. that you know, just, just trying to make ends yeah. meet. Mm-hmm. And I think our systems, like in general, you know, banking and and just even like societal systems of understanding how how people work now, they just got to catch up. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I, I, uh, Either I that or we're all tanking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we wake up post-apocalyptic smoke everywhere. I forget where I read it, but basically uh, somebody somewhere at one point recently wrote that um, the economy has failed creative people so poorly, it's become so bad, that we basically have had to create our own economy where we are making our own things and selling them to other creative people and... So we basically have just invented this micro-economy for makers, but it doesn't work well with the outside world. Yeah, we see that even with with our business. With with what we do, we still get peppered in, you know, big restaurants Mm -hmm. and these kind of things, and those are just kind of take-the-money-and-run kind of jobs. But the really creative work that you enjoy doing is usually for other creatives and they're usually poor so you're like doing it cheap but that's okay i mean it's yeah it per, it perpetuates per, yeah you know it pushes everything forward for everybody and i think that's good i think that was like sean for everybody out there in podcast line sean was our very first custom job we printed which was amazing to be able to work with someone so talented and so eager to work with us uh like right out of the the you know the dock because usually you get a bride who is just awful as your first job um but you, taught, wasn't you were not Zilla? an awful friend so thank god um but you taught us a really awesome lesson and you know it's totally rung true that the lesson of when you work with the small guys do what you can to make everybody happy you know and when it comes down to the big guys that's, or bridezillas. Bride you just got to ask for what it's worth to put up with this totally. pressure. Totally. You know, it's, uh, you know we, we got a baptism by fire with that, with uh, some work we did for The Gap with those taco trucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The demands were insane. And so, you know, even before we had entered into a contract, the demands were so crazy. I was like, I'm just going to ask for the money I need for this. Know, but you know, it's it's kind of going through this transition with that too. And I, I think you guys probably have gotten a taste of this. Of um, the corporate world, I think saw what was going on in the maker community, 
And it's like, well, we need to tap into that because people connect <laughs> with it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking back now and seeing that, you know, we were used in quite a few instances oh. by some of these big companies. Yeah. And we used them back. I'm not going to complain. Right. We, used, we, we, we charged them. We charged them well for it. But, you know, it's, it's just interesting. There's also the flip side of that where larger companies are looking at places like Etsy and small handmade markets mm -hmm. and just lifting those ideas oh, yeah. and oh. printing them and doing them themselves and then figuring that, you know, well, it's just well, a small do, maker. Sue me? Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a total Donald I, Trump I don't, mentality. Yeah, I don't remember the, the girl's name, but she designs all these cool Pins, little things with the pins. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, and some big retailer, like, totally stole all of it. Uh -huh. Yeah. And and then, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah whatever. Take me to court. It was, yeah. It was, yeah, it happens far more frequently than you imagine, and it's just... We're, we're lucky enough that I think that Handmade is a large enough uh, market where it's touching enough people in enough places that um, you do get people who will let you know about this stuff. But I know people who have walked into Target, not known anything, and seen almost a direct copy of their mm -hmm. t-shirt design yeah. on a mannequin with absolutely no notice um, and, and no hints as to that you know, potentially happening to them. So, you know, as the handmade community grows, yes, that is more increasingly a problem, but I, you know, people look out for us. People like us. People yeah. don't like Target. Yeah. Well, that, that's the key <laughs> is, you know, you got mega corporate crap out there, you know, doing this kind of stuff, but the, the cat's already out of the bag. People yeah. have figured out what they're doing and how they're manipulating people and they're disconnecting and they're panicking. And the, the scary thing is like, we just recently had a wholesale order from a very large Cleveland-based company who has uh, a storefront in the first floor of their headquarters. And they ordered from us, and it's it's sad, but my first thought was, why are they ordering this from us? Mm -hmm. And are they just going to take this product and reverse engineer it and make their own? Well, ultimately. And then, and then I had to try to figure out what do I do to protect myself from that, and it was like so costly that I just, gave up and was like, well, I'm just going to send it and hope for the best. And it yeah. worked out really nicely. It worked out well. But Thank God. Thank yeah, you so but, much. But, <laughs> it, but you have to view it that way, and it really stinks, but you do because there is that mentality out there of just slash and burn, and then they know that some little independent company working out of, you know, a basement or a house or whatever yeah what are you gonna do you're they gonna have drop to 20 grand on some lawyer mm -hmm. and in the end you probably just have to pay him nothing will get solved anyway yeah. so it's just I, I think it's to a certain extent you just gotta rise above it mm -hmm. just be like you know you stink yeah, yeah. karma will get you yeah yeah yeah, yeah for sure There's so you are as I am a car old class <laughs> car fanatic yes and you have a car that you drive around. I do. I envy. I have a, a 57 Chevy Bel Air. Um, it is a uh, from the factory. Uh, most 57 Chevy Bel Airs were two tone, so you had like white and with a red top or something like that. This car from the factory was uh, black on black with red interior, um, and it came with what was called the Power Pack, which was a 283 engine, four barrel car, dual exhaust. Very cool. So, so um, you cruise that around up there? Yeah, we uh, took it apple picking last <laughs> Sunday because it doesn't get driven nearly as much as it should, and so I'll find any excuse I can to, to drive it. But we um, 
Also go to, uh, there's a 50s diner called Annabelle's mm-hmm. um, where they have, you know, a band out every Saturday night and just tons of cars show up and sit around and talk about old cars and stuff. So, cool. yeah. Yeah, we're, we're seeing, you know, more develop in this area. I was kind of surprised when we moved here. I thought that with um, the reputation of, you know, Texas cars and Southern cars not rusting and things like that, I thought that there would be more of a classic car community down here when we moved here in 2009. And it, you know, it was like once a year they would do a car cruise on the square. And that was kind of the extent of what I found so. Yeah, well, and there, there's a lot of stuff underneath the surface. Like mm-hmm. there's um, the drag strip, mm-hmm. you know, over there on 35 that's been operating for who Forever. knows how long. Yeah. Um, and that old junkyard next to it's, you know, supplied a lot of people with a lot of things. But I think that culturally that's starting to come into its own mm-hmm. just even in the last two years. Yeah, and it's a, it's a fun culture because it pulls in a lot of different types of people. Um, you know, w- when we go out cruising, we'll we'll see. You know, like I'm I'm more of a classic car guy. I like all original cars. But then there's people who are into you know hot rods, rat, and rods. rat rods, and uh, gassers, and all sorts of different cultures, all kind of mixing together mm-hmm. and bonding over just old cars is the mm-hmm. the general headline. Yeah. It's really impressive. A lot of these cruises, I was. To be honest, very surprised because my, my dad is a classic car guy and I knew that my dad and Dave would, would get along at least on that level when Dave came to visit my house for the first time because they've got like this, you know, huge history of antique cars and classic cars that they can talk about. But there is a really large movement seemingly of rat rods in northeastern Ohio or at least Ohio, um, maybe yeah, even Pennsylvania. And, and that's a fascinating thing to me. Um, People, I think, when they hear rat rods, immediately think of like the really over exaggerated, mm-hmm. you know, some of it's really pukey, yeah. everything's welded together stuff. But um, I mean, a lot of it is very much the spirit of what hot rodding started as, because mm-hmm. those guys came back from World War II with a bunch of mechanical knowledge, yep. zero money, mm-hmm. and really didn't want to participate because they were disillusioned, so they didn't want to go like get a corporate job. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of these guys were just helping each other soup up old cars that they bought for a hundred bucks at a junkyard yeah and and at that time i mean you they had i mean during right after world war ii like scrap drives were well during world war ii scrap drives were a big thing and so there were just junkyards full of stuff and Mm -hmm. they just happened to get to it before it got melted down and just kind of would piece together whatever they could find to yeah and i i think that's um you know it, it's kind of a predecessor of punk rock in a way. Yeah. You know, it's just like dropping out of mainstream society yep. and DIY. Borrowing from whatever you can yeah. find and mm-hmm. trying to cobble something together. Yeah, so I, I, I like the Rat Rod uh, movement aside from the really over-the-top <laughs> nonsensical stuff. Yeah. But even that has a value, I guess, because people are at least expressing themselves. But. Yeah. They, they're not afraid. That's what I like the most is they'll show up and they don't care what you think. Yeah. This is their 
thing. They made this. Yeah. And to me, that's the most exciting part, not being as much of a car person, being more of like a cultural, mm-hmm. uh, like just trying to get in tune with like why these things are happening. I'm just always interested. Yeah, in I, I think steampunk has influenced that to a certain extent too. Mm-hmm. You know, just the desire to kind of live in your own little fantasy world. Yeah. <laughs> this world sucks. I'm going to hide within this. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, but I, I mean, I grew up with that stuff. I mean, my my dad passed away in 2005 and left us with a barn full of classic cars that I hope to be able to get to someday and do something with. It's a pretty cool inheritance. Yeah, yeah it's not bad. And, and they're, um, I'm lucky enough to have, like, it's not just, you know, a barn full of cars, but it's, like, the car that my parents drove to their wedding. Mm. Or it's, like, the car that my mom got from... Her, you know, she graduated high school and her parents bought her a 69 Camaro and we have that, you know, or um, when my dad was in high school, he drove a 65 Cutlass and he went out and, and bought a, a Olds 442, 65 Olds 442. That was like the one he drove in high school. And so we have, it's like this weird, uh, you know, nostalgia and sentimental value and all this stuff just kind of like all piled on top of itself sitting in this barn yeah but see I I think that's why uh, car culture and for people that don't that haven't been exposed to it I think that there's kind of this predisposition like oh that's just like a macho you know like jock kind of thing and it's like it, it it goes so far beyond that because it's not only like what you're describing, like your family history mm-hmm. is tied in with these cars, but then you have all, also the other aspect of, um, you know, the the freedom aspect of, yeah. of what transportation means and the ability to go experience new things mm-hmm. and mix with people of a variety of cultures. Um, and I think that's why it perpetuates with each generation is because that part of it's awesome. Yeah, it, it means, and it means so many different things to so many different people. Like when you go to car cruises, you have all of those people who have, you know, the nostalgia and for American history or family history, and all of those people can yeah. kind of come together. Yeah, so yeah, it's like the United Nations of <laughs> transportation. Yeah, <laughs> everyone can participate. Yeah, you have like your your MG clubs and yeah, your, yeah you know. Chevy clubs. I've I've got something cool coming up on the horizon. I can't give too much details, but mm-hmm. it's going to involve a radio show called the Hot Rod Hour. Okay. And um, so I'll be covering like local events and spinning um, rockabilly records. Oh, that should be fun. And, yeah. I like this already. Yeah, you don't have to sell us on. We'll just tune in. <laughs> Car, cars and records. What's not to love? Speaking of records, mm-hmm. you you're like the record guy like everybody knows the record guy who works in a record store You're yeah record that, that when I was in Denton that was me uh I started collecting records when I was 15 which was half of my life ago at this point you mean like LP vinyl yes. LP records okay. uh when I was a teen well I was yeah when I was a kid I was really into classic rock and CDs were expensive CDs cost 20 bucks you could go to Half Price Books and you could buy every Led Zeppelin record for a buck. So that seemed like a way better option. So that's what I started doing. Um, and then my grandpa caught wind of it and he uh, he had gotten this box of records from his neighbor uh, whose kid left it at their house. And so he goes, 
my grandpa was into um, just all sorts of like you know Latin music and and jazz and that kind of stuff and he pulled this box out of his basement and he gives it to me and he goes I went through here and took out everything that I want and you can have the rest and I know there was nothing in that box that he wanted and it was all you know Pink Floyd and and there was like Boston records and there was nothing he wanted in that box but he gave it to me he gave me my first record player and that was kind of the beginning of that um and it's been cool to see uh I mean I hunted for stuff for years that I'm gonna sound I'm gonna be the old guy like the <laughs> what I'm gonna be the you're like, 31 <laughs> I'm gonna be like the all you know damn kids hey, these that's days slippery slope man. yeah you're in the 30s you now. can't say you can't you're an say, adult but yeah. there's like stuff that I hunted for for you know 10 years to find a good copy of Pet Sounds or something mm. like that and now it's just like oh here's you, know, you go to a record store and there's just 20 copies or eBay. Free you, yeah. yeah. What, what you mean is you're a curmudgeon. You're in. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be. I'll be the curmudgeon. Yeah, totally. I was find it really funny and just kind of piecing all this together after how many years of us, you know, being in a relationship and like working together and things like that. Is you've got like, I guess like a really good sentimental attachment to a lot of really cool old stuff that always has like a, a tie to a person and I don't know like letterpress. People always come up, my dad was pressman, or, you know, I used to run this in high school, this is how I learned about graphic design and things like that. People fall in love with presses, people fall in love with cars, people fall in love with these records, and Just it's all personal. Just a sentimental curmudgeon, I guess. sentimental curmudgeon. <laughs> I've never known you were so soft. Yeah. Can I say? But yeah, they'll be getting counseling when they get back to <laughs> Tell yeah. me more about your life, Dave. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was, I mean, I collected records for years. When Mad World Records opened on the square, I started working there and worked there pretty much the whole time that they were in Denton until we moved away. So, so I'm going to put you guys on the spot. Yes, uh-huh. sir. What do you guys, you guys been here since 2009? Mm-hmm. We moved I, here in 2009, okay. yeah. I first came out in 2006 or seven. Mm-hmm. So what do you guys feel about the direction Denton is heading? Because there's been a ton of change since that era of about 2009. What yeah. Do you, what do you guys think? Um, some of it is really good. Uh, when we moved here, we lived just south of the square across from uh, what used to be El Guapo's, which is no longer there, but um, we lived in those uh, <clears throat> those apartments, and we would walk to the square, and there was like Jupiter House and Recycled were the only things that had life yeah. that we wanted to do on the square, and so we would just like walk around, and they're on like the same side of the square, which was the same side of the street we lived on, so we would basically just walk up Locust, get a coffee, and walk back down Locust, and that was all there was to do. Um, and that's not the case anymore. Now there's a lot of mm-hmm. fun, there's a lot of neat stuff. I mean, there's, I remember when Atomic opened in what used to be a tuxedo rental office. Um, Mad World opened in what used to be like an old lady boutique store. Um, you know, so there's all this fun stuff that's happening. But then on the flip side of that, there's, you know, J&J is not being able to have shows in their basement anymore and rubber gloves closing, and all these places that uh, we used to go all the time that are just, you know, within a couple of months all closed down. And a lot 
of it isn't, you know, closing. It's uh, new things opening, which is always exciting, but I, I feel like sometimes you have an area that is growing really quickly, Denton happens to be one of those areas, and you experience a tone deafness in what, uh, you know, these types of businesses that are opening don't necessarily cater to the people who are living in the area. We had a burger place that opened probably five or six years ago. It's not open anymore. It's a different restaurant, same owner, that we personally felt like that was the a, a beginning to this kind of tone deafness. Uh, they were serving like $13 hamburgers in a town where the income, the median income is $30,000. I don't know how generous. you can, yeah, it's generous. I don't know Who's how. making $30,000? <laughs> how do I get my hands on the rent? Um, but it just seems, um, it seemed a little bit like the beginning of it all. And, and we, of course, don't mind eating $13 hamburgers every once in a while. It just wasn't. Um, it wasn't quite in tune with what the community needed. And every time you are driving up and down a street in an area that's developing, look around you and count how many coffee shops are there, how many vape labs are there, how many you know sh shoe stores are there. You, you have to kind of start to look around you and say, how is anyone surviving where we've got multiples of these really similar businesses when one business was doing quite all right and in fact thriving and it's kind of scary uh, you feel bad almost for for everybody I, I, I don't know I've, I go back and forth I have bad days and good days about it um, I think that there's a lot of wonderful changes yes. the beer gardens you know, and the changing of the liquor laws and all of that, mm -hmm. that's Absolutely. really great progressive stuff. Um, you know, I, I do fear like a Disneyland kind of vibe developing, but mm -hmm. you know, at the same time, I mean, what are you gonna do? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, it's taken me a lot of years to like kind of accept the inevitableness mm -hmm. of life. Yeah, well, it also gets into a weird thing where you don't, you don't want to have to regulate, you know, who can open what and where, but you kind of just have to trust that everyone's going to, like, everyone just be cool. And, you know, you know yeah. what's a good sign to me is the, the issue with Subway on the square. Yeah. yeah. You know, they basically got boycotted out by the public who said, we're not going to support you, and they moved. Yeah. So, I mean, that's telling, and that's also encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I think... I'm, I'm, I'm right on the fence between, I, I think that there's some really like cool Phoenix from the ashes kind of stuff that could come from things like rubber gloves mm -hmm. and all of that. I mean, those people aren't going anywhere Yeah. and they're going to regroup and figure out something else. So, I mean, I, I think we just got to wait and see what things turn into. Yeah. The, the bigger issue is uh, that and one that we experienced head on was... Uh, you know, what happens when you have the $13 burger place that's surviving in an area despite the fact that nobody in the area can afford to... What happens? To, yeah, what happens to the people in the area? Yeah. Well, you those kinds of places, we'll just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, if, if you look at the clientele, they're obviously people from the suburbs coming in. Yeah, but then you have people who, who come in for that type of atmosphere and think like, oh, this is a great place for me to live and move up here and 
displace, you know, what used to be uh, mostly college kids living in, you know, here, dumpy here, little houses. Here's kind of the, thing. the 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 challenging part. I've talked about the same talked about this issue with quite a few other creatives. Is it's like okay, so you need a workspace, you need a living space. It has to be cheap so that you can develop your craft and your clientele and all of that those things at this point really only exist in small towns yeah. mm -hmm. but you can't go live in a small town because you lose your brain yeah so <laughs> it's like you know I, I don't know what the answer is I mean we ran into it when we were in San Francisco where it's just if, if we weren't living in the little mother-in-law apartment under my brother's house and working out of his garage mm -hmm. like we would have like there's no way we could have done it yeah and you know, you're talking to people who are paying three, four, five thousand dollars a month of rent for a one-bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. You know, and any little workspace. I mean, when we finally did afford a workspace, it was the back section of a friend of ours that made custom furniture, and yeah. he had a dead space full of wood, and he's like, "Clear that out, and you can, you know, pay me five hundred bucks to work out of there." Mm -hmm. And five hundred bucks for anything in San Francisco is like non-existent. Yeah. Um, so it's like I don't I don't know what you do because I mean you could like probably go you know up to you know Sanger or some other little town where there's zero activity rent something dirt cheap but then you're completely isolated on an island yeah. and the the other problem that you run into with that is that uh, you know where, where we're moving our studio into is an area of Cleveland called Slavic Village um, throughout the you know, early part of the 1900s, it was an Eastern European community of people who just had a skill and would just go set up shop and be a furniture maker or a butcher or whatever, and they would just do their, their thing. Um, then, you know, the neighborhood kind of started changing and all of those people either died off or moved away because they didn't feel safe. And then in the early 2000s, it became ground zero for foreclosure crisis. 44105 zip code had the highest number of foreclosures of any zip code in the entire country. And so now we're at a point where everything's dirt cheap, hardly anybody wants to live there, and everyone's like seeing dollar signs of like, well, we can buy all these buildings that are, you know, from before World War One, and we can fix them up and we can get people to move in here. And all of that's well and good, but it's like you still have people who feel like they have to live in that community and where do they go once yeah. you've fixed everything up and so you know we're we're moving in and and trying uh everyone's talking about you know the gentrification of slavic village it's coming it's so gonna happen in their, in their minds you guys are the we're, 13 dollar hamburger yeah we're, exactly we and so we're trying to strike this balance of i i like the term a gentrification where we're not coming in and trying to drive up everybody's home values and doing all this stuff, but just kind of like make everybody in the neighborhood feel comfortable about being in the neighborhood and trying to bring everybody, everybody up, which I know is the thing that everybody says before an area gets gentrified, but... We sound like hippies. Yeah, well, <laughs> they... But it's really, I think, essential to understand that not everything can be perfectly organic, but if you pay a lot of attention to what the area needs, what it can sustain, 
and where the breaking point is, you can fit in just fine, not ruin anyone's day, not take away from anyone, and improve your community. And that is what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and that's cool. And I, and I also think that there's um, there's like a symbiotic relationship between the capitalists and the artists <laughs> because you can't really facilitate a lot of those changes without somebody who's willing to, you know, be speculative and put money on the line and all of that. So it, and and work out of, you know, an area of town that nobody wants to work out of because, you know, they're See, you're, what you guys are, are facing is kind of like this small town scenario, but it's within a, a metropolitan area that you can tap into. Yeah. And I think that's what's um, maybe different about, you know, the, the Metroplex is very much like the L.A. sprawl. Mm -hmm. Just rolls into one thing into another, and all of them have their, you know, massive housing developments yeah. creeping in and all this stuff. And, you know, it... There's really no way to be in the Metroplex that I've identified to where you can also do what you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. I think it has to be you're in the heart of an old city like that that's got little pockets. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, Cleveland has a ton of them. Uh, there's really good pockets where everybody wants to live, and then there's the parts that everybody hears about on the news and makes everybody afraid to come to Cleveland, but those aren't... I mean, I don't think that either one of those places is a good representation of the city as a, of a, as a whole. Um, you know, there's, I mean, but that's that's anywhere. Yeah, without that, my, so my co-host Tom in Limerick, Ireland. Mm -hmm. we, we we've talked quite a bit. Limerick is kind of the Cleveland of Ireland. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like it. It's got a long history, but it's kind of always been like the redheaded stepchild of yeah. Dublin and all this kind of stuff and. You know, they're just now with a lot of effort kind of overcoming that, but mm -hmm. it's still kind of like, oh, but that's Limerick. That's what I've picked up from him anyway. Yeah. And it, it's just funny how things like that, you know, take yeah. in people's minds and reputations. And, and the sad thing is, is that, you know, in the 1920s, Cleveland had the highest uh, per capita income of like any city in the U.S., because it was situated exactly between New York and Chicago. So if you were an industrialist who wanted to work in New York and Chicago, you could live in Cleveland and be equidistant from both of your, you know, manufacturing or whatever you were doing in those two cities. So they actually had Euclid Avenue in Cleveland. It's called Millionaire's Row. And, you know, the Rockefellers had houses there and the Carnegie's had houses there. And there's all this so all of our problems stem from Cleveland. Well, it stems from people. It. it stems from Damn people it. leaving Cleveland. That's the problem Damn because it. once you know, once air travel became a thing and everyone was flying everywhere and you didn't need to be located centrally to your, you know, your businesses and you could go wherever. People were like, well, why do we want to live in Cleveland? Let's leave. So then that's where all the problems started. It's when everybody left and they only came back to get buried. Good save. Yeah. <laughs> Got awesome, awesome graveyards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, we had a blast digging around up there. And, you know, my parents came from Cleveland originally before mm -hmm. we moved to Texas. I was like seven or eight. Um, so it was kind of interesting going. I did live there for a couple of years in my early 20s because my dad wanted to move the business back there. And after like two winters was like... 
it's hard. Yeah. Going back to Texas. Not forever. <laughs> it's, it's definitely chilly. Um, and it's like, you see why people who were of lower income lived there. You know, it was you summer in Cleveland. You mm. have a lake and then you leave. Yeah. Uh, but you live there year round because you don't have enough money to get away from the snowstorm. Yeah, having, having grown up in South Texas when we went back mm-hmm. for a few years, uh, it was a shock to the system. It was like, I cannot believe how cold it is. Yes. <laughs> we, we went back uh, a couple of Christmases ago when we were still living in Texas. And we had to drive to a show that we were doing, and we had to get there at like seven in the morning, which in winter is still dark out. And it was an awful snowstorm, and there was thunder. Thunder snow. Thunder snow. <laughs> so it's, it's a thunder and lightning storm with a downpour of snow. And the roads were horrible, and I couldn't see anything, and I'm white knuckle driving down the freeway. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what it was, but something just clicked in my head. And it was like, oh, I'm from here. I know how to do this. And then after that, I was fine and just kind of soldiered on and we made it there. So you guys came from Cleveland to Denton so that you could go to school. Yes. So that's I took him with me and I actually asked him to come with me as a joke, which is really funny because you can hear how much he loves Cleveland. And he came to Texas with me, so he must have really liked me uh, for a little while, at least. Uh, but yeah, we're both from Cleveland. We're just from opposite sides of Cleveland. We're the, like, I feel like... Which our Uber driver explained to us is a thing. Like yeah. If you're from one side, yeah. Yeah, you're not from the other side. We're like Hatfields and McCoys. We had to meet we're, at the river on our first date and just like kind of strike an accord to make our families Very okay Romeo with it. Juliet. I was going to Basically, say, I think we're yeah. more Romeo and Juliet because there's the love factor. The Hatfields Dude, and McCoys killed each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes it's Hatfields and McCoys. Yeah, sometimes we want to kill each other. But it happens. <laughs> okay, so in the last seven days, well, you've been on a trip, mm-hmm. yeah. so you can go back a little further. Okay. But you can... You can Name off what you want, but you have to include some guilty pleasures. Like, what have you guys listened to in the last two weeks? <laughs> Complete honesty. Uh, so <laughs> she's laughing like she's feeling guilty about something. No, he's the one who should be guilty. <laughs> we were driving uh, to the airport, and I, I don't know what it is about Cleveland, but for being the rock and roll capital of the world, the radio stations are not that good. And so we were, we were driving down the freeway, and I just had, I don't even remember what station it was, but we were listening to something, and uh, I just blanked on the song. I can't even remember what song oh, it was. Oh, come on. Uh, you know he knows. No, I can't remember what song it was. I've just had horrible songs stuck in my head. Just sing like, a few bars. You should. You got. You I don't got remember. The talent. It was something along the lines of a boy band song that came out of. It a, wasn't a boy band song. It wasn't a boy band yeah, song. It was. Uh, no, it was uh, "Next to Be with You" by Mr. Big. He knew came all on in the radio. The words, all the words. And well, because that's what my dad listened to. Like that was. Blame it on your dad. That's what he listened to. So your dad I, left you cars. So yeah. You blame well, it on you your dad. he also yes. he also left me uh, a heavily 80s influenced music collection <laughs> and so um but apparently like laura had never even heard that song which is, was weird to me because it was a super popular song but then that song has just been stuck in my head all day so i'm having to listen to like all of this just like basically punk music to get it out you've got okay. i have to exercise the demons yeah. so, so when kaylee and i were in you guys's car mm-hmm. um 
when we went to go get food and stuff. You guys were playing some stuff for us oh, yeah. that was really cool. What was that? We were playing uh, a giant dog. A giant dog, their new album called Pile. Uh, they have three albums a giant dog pile, a giant dog pile, and then uh, their second album is a giant dog's bone. bone, and their first album is a giant dog's fight. So those are their. Yeah. They're three albums, and I don't know how long they're going to be able to keep that up, but it's been fun. A Giant Dog is by far the best music to listen to when you are driving home from a show really late at night, and you're on the edge of slipping into, like, sleepy drivey land, and it, you, so you'll this, die. This is, like, modern punk, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So, like, what, what would you classify that as, as a it's, genre? It's, um... I, I Power sh- pop? Yeah, it's like heavy power pop, like early 70s power pop. Mm -hmm. When we saw them in Cleveland a couple of weeks ago, they played a song by a band called Sparks, which if you... It's good. Sparks is like the one of the weirdest bands because they released a ton of albums and half of them are really good, but they're not, they don't have like a early period that's good and a later period that's bad. It's just like whatever they were feeling at the time. And so they have... You can just go on allmusic.com and look up Sparks and just... How do you, and there's a bunch of five-star album reviews, and yeah. they're really good. They're great. Uh, the, the best part about it is, like, you're going to listen to this, and if you like it, you know you immediately have a friend when you say, like, so do you like to listen to Sparks? If they say, ugh, no, like, screw them. Do yeah. not, don't hang out the, with them. <laughs> usually what happens is you say, have you ever listened to Sparks? And the answer is either yes or what the hell are you talking about? I've never heard of that. And band you be friends life. with the person who's heard of Sparks before, and if the person well, has get out of my studio, yeah, I don't know who you're talking you about. gotta listen to Sparks. <laughs> you can listen to them; they're it's, very it's, silly. It's awesome, like alone in the studio, trying to like just like be entertained while you're painting or drawing or you know running the press. We like stuff with like a good beat because the press is a really rhythmic kind of thing, and you get tired out real fast. It's a, We call them print push-ups on our tiny little press because it's, it's just really yeah, going manual at labor. it. Manual yeah. labor. Uh, so you need some, some stimulation from you know caffeine, good music. Uh, who else have we been listening to? Oh, I, Car Seat Headrest. Car Seat Headrest has a new album that's pretty good. Um, they talk about the thing with the cars. They did a song uh, on their new album that was uh, very heavily influenced by the Cars' Just What I Needed. And when I say heavily influenced, I mean they directly borrowed parts of that song and made this new song uh, around it. And they, the band called Rick Ocasek from the Cars, said, hey, we wrote this song, we want to put it on our next album, but we want your okay to do it. And he listened to the song and said, yeah, I guess it's fine, whatever. So they went forward, like mastered the the album, pressed it, got everything printed for the album cover and everything. And like right before the album came out, they got a phone call from his lawyers and they said, don't, you can't put that song on your album. And they had to destroy every copy of this album. And the lesson is, don't. Don't, don't ask for, ask for permission, <laughs> just for do forgiveness. it. <laughs> uh, so, um, so they had to re-press this, this record without one song on it because, you know, Rick Ocasek wasn't happy or his lawyers weren't happy or whatever. But uh, the rest of the album is, is good. That song that they took off the album was 
I don't know if it's my favorite song on the album because of what happened or if it was my favorite song anyways, but I really... Controversy sells. Yeah, I really like that song and I'm, I was kind of upset that it didn't make the album, but... We're kind of into a little bit of like uh, the surf comeback uh, of the West Coast bands. A lot of them kind of like are, are touring a lot now, so you can probably find a couple of, of really good ones. But the other band that we like to listen to that has a good number of instrumental songs, if you're not down with vocals, is uh, La Luz. It's a, a really great, uh, I think they're from Portland. Portland. Uh, they are new wave surf, I guess. I don't know. Um, it's really fun if you like vocals. They got vocals. If you don't like vocals, they don't have vocals. Um, yeah, they're, they have two albums that are both really good. Their music videos are fun, too, because they really touch on a, like a visual culture of like old pulp posters, and uh, they love to do like the 60s soundstage aesthetic, but like something is kind of messed up about it. Like The platforms they're standing on are, are not quite level and stuff like that. really tri- plays with your mind. So Also, just a, um, a lesson... I don't know the lesson that we learned, but a lesson for visual artists out there. Their first album cover is a it's a picture of a painting that somebody had done and they, you know, put their graphics on it and everything. And Laura picked up this record the first time and she looks at it and she goes, "The person who made this album cover has a cat." And I go, "How do you know that? That's like a weird thing to think of when you pick up this album cover." And in the photo, you can see like little cat hairs on the painting like they didn't uh, so if you're a visual artist and you want to photograph your work make sure you do it in a cat free space or people like Laura are going to automatically know that you have a cat and judge I think you. that's more an issue of Laura's than it is <laughs> if making the art yeah probably but. what does that tell you about me I think a little bit more than I wanted people to know it tells me that you have a cat because how else would you know what cat hair looks like on a painting So, are you guys familiar with Arhuli Records? Yes. Okay. So, I've got an arrangement with them. At the end of every podcast, I play a song from their catalog. So, what genre of music would you like catched with your interview? Oh. It can be El Blues, it can be Tejano, it can be Mm, Zydeco. Can we get some, like, good soul do they have soul? No, not really. Yeah. They don't really. Because no. he documented everything no. going on in pretty much the southern, southern U.S. US yeah. What do you think? Uh, I would like a very soulful blues song. Okay, have cats. This is the part of the show where we play a song from the Arhuli archive, so pay attention. You can get these tunes from the legendary Arhuli records at arhuli.com. Now sit back. Open up some one shot, crank up the volume, and expand your minds, babies.